You're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. From the front lines of healthcare, the home front, and other unique perspectives on learning and connecting in the time of coronavirus. Hello, and welcome to COVID Chronicles. I'm Jenny Rudolph, and this is my virtual journey around the globe to understand people's unique experiences and perspectives on the COVID pandemic in 2020. Today, I'm here with David Rico, a Jungian and Buddhist psychotherapist and a writer, prolific writer of 20 or more books on subjects related to personal growth, presence, self-development, and how to learn through reading and writing poetry. What the heck does this have to do with clinical care in the COVID pandemic? I hope to help you see those connections. And to do that, today I'm joined by guest co-host Rebecca Meinhardt, a anesthesiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital and the leader of our anesthesia crisis resource management program here at the Center for Medical Simulation, where I work. Uh, David, so very pleased to have you. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Jen. And Rebecca, thank you for coming on the show today. It's really great to have you too. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. David, part of what I shared with you as we were getting ready for our conversation is how transformational and helpful I had found your most recent book, which is called Triggers, How We Can Stop Reacting and Start Healing. And I found this both poignant and humorous because I've noticed over the years that in meetings or conversations, I often get triggered. And I thought I was just stuck with it, basically. I was like, this is a personal weakness of mine. And, you know, what the heck can I do about it? And I was so delighted when I stumbled upon your book because you basically help us see how these triggers are kind of a portal into understanding ourselves better, interacting more effectively, and finding a way to be present with other humans even when we're really triggered. So I wonder if you could talk with me and Rebecca a little bit about your thinking behind the book. Well, first of all, I myself felt at first, that my being triggered was a form of weakness. In doing the research on the book and in the writing of the book, I came to the realization that a trigger is actually like a trailhead into things in our own lives that we still have not fully resolved. And these can go all the way back to childhood. And so actually, what triggers us consistently over time tells us something about what we can work on. And when I say work, from a psychological point of view, that means first to acknowledge what the issue may be, which I call addressing the issue, then processing it by looking at the feelings that are coming up around it and looking at how whatever has triggered us somehow connects to something unresolved in our 
distant past or recent past. So it could be something from childhood. It could be something from a recent relationship at home or work. Finally, resolving with coming to whatever the authentic feeling was when the trigger first occurred and allowing ourselves to experience it now. So for instance, if in childhood my parents were very critical of me and this had an effect on my self-esteem, also gave me a sense of shame, I'm not good enough. If I were to work on this, instead of finding the shame, the stopping point, I would look at the grief that I originally felt but was not really allowed to express. And this grief would be expressed by sadness that I was treated this way, anger that this happened to me, and fear about it happening again, which would be the recurrent triggers that actually are re-stimulations of what was originally felt as abusive. So a trigger is something like a post-traumatic distress that is being re-stimulated. A trigger is a stimulus. Our reaction is the equivalent of the response, of course. And when I re-experience it with the appropriate feelings that go with it, then the wallop of the trigger reduces. We will never get rid of triggers altogether, but we can certainly reduce the impact they have on us. In other words, they no longer destabilize us. We can experience them, feel the little ping, but at the same time have the resources to come to some equanimity into what we do next. Instead of being pushed into an immediate reaction mm. that later we might regret. So David, the interesting thing I think for me as I read this work and thought about the current COVID-19 pandemic healthcare challenges that I see my colleagues, especially my acute care colleagues across our hospital system and others that we work with, is that everybody's at or near the edge of their fatigue level, stress level, expertise level, because the pathophysiology and the disease state is different from what they're used to. And so I think when we have a sort of shorter fuse, it's even easier to become triggered. And so I thought maybe we could apply that kind of three-step process that you just outlined to an example. And so I'm asking you, Rebecca, if you wouldn't mind, I can imagine there's a lot of challenging things in a day of care on the obstetric floor. Could you share something that was triggering for you, if you don't mind? Absolutely. I'm just reflecting on some of what David said, which was this is sort of rooted in a traumatic experience and how all of COVID has really traumatized all of us in enormous ways, whether or not we choose to accept that. I feel like healthcare professionals, especially, I mean, in addition to all of the patients who are affected, I'm not trying to, you know, undersell their pain and suffering. And as a healthcare professional, I do believe our group has been traumatized. And so when I was 
considering my own trigger, which I will share as a basically a composite story of patient care interactions that I've had on the labor and delivery floor. Everyone has their own personal take on whether or not they wear a mask and, and how they feel about that when we're coming into contact with them. The hospital policy for patients is that they need to wear a mask on labor and delivery, and they are allowed one visitor if they're delivering their baby, and their partner also needs to wear a mask. And so one of the triggers that I have noticed is when I enter a patient's room to meet them or to answer a call about something, and they are not wearing their mask, I have to say, this is, an, this is the confession, I feel this intense rage. And it's, it's, it's really the first time I felt it, I was so shocked at myself. So I've done enough mindfulness myself and try to you know, manage myself and my emotions and my state that I had some awareness in the moment. Certainly this didn't come out at all. But when I entered the room and I, I saw, and this happens not just one time, but it happens occasionally, people not wearing masks, I just, it, it, it did trigger me. And so I just, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that's, that's something I would love to hear how you process that or what advice you have for people like me who have these triggers. Uh, I just have one question before I respond. When you said you felt rage, did you show it in some way or was it simply internal? It was entirely internal. I actually, what I did was I stopped. I'm sure my eyes got big under my own mask and face shields and all the things that I had to wear. And I just paused and then I actually had to take a step back. And then I, I have adopted a strategy where I say, oh, you know, I, it's, I'm Rebecca Meinhardt from Anesthesia. I'm hoping that you won't mind putting on your mask so I can enter your room as a way to take care of my own internal state and, and hopefully have some behavior change on their end. But I do not, as a rule, do not ever show that rage. I would never do that. That would be against my, every professional. Yeah. In my, in my, you know, in my, in my brain. So. Good. Well, thanks for explaining that. And of course, that is the correct professional way of handling your reaction. I also imagine that it had the power to disarm the experience of opposition, like between you and the patient. We always want to do that. We want to disarm the opposition so that it, it doesn't feel conflicted. It isn't a reprimand such as, what's wrong with you? Don't you realize we have a rule here that you're supposed to wear a mask? Instead, you're saying, would you help me be able to enter the room by wearing the mask? So I really admire that way of doing it. But let's go to the question of, what brings up the rage, because I think that's going to be more relevant to our overall discussion. First of all, anger is defined in the dictionary as displeasure at a perceived injustice. So when you saw the person not wearing a mask, 
you immediately noticed that something unjust, unfair was going on. Everyone else has to wear a mask. Why can't you or why don't you? You're not saying that out loud, but that's in your mind. And it's a completely logical, understandable thought to have. And the anger that you felt was therefore quite appropriate. And there was even more. It was, it's this, because the coronavirus is this invisible, constant threat that we didn't have testing for, we didn't have adequate protection for ourselves. It was like an assault. It was like a sneak attack. I came in and I just could, it was a, it was a direct physical threat is how I perceived it. I think that's what's going on too. That it's not just the, why don't you have to follow the rules, but it's a, it's a physical attack on, attack on me. Okay, let me stay with that. Now what you're bringing up, and I'm so glad that you're enriching the explanation by showing yet another feeling that's included, which is fear. So fear is the natural response to threat or danger. And you also had that feeling of fear along with the anger. Yes. <laughs> yes, very much. And you were allowing yourself to have both feelings at once. So the opposite of that would be road rage, in which we feel fear first, because somebody has driven in such a way as to put us in danger. But we immediately cancel the primary feeling of fear and go directly to rage. And then we might do something that's totally inappropriate, like give some scurrilous gesture or whatever. You're not doing that. You're just holding your feelings, which is what we have to do with patients. And you're simply defusing the whole situation by making the correct recommendation. Let's go straight to the solution and skip the feelings that are coming up in between. But it will always be a good idea when you have your huddle with the other caretakers to talk about that, to say, you know, I came in, somebody wasn't wearing a mask, and this is what I felt. And what it does is it helps the other people in the room realize that, oh, I have that same feeling, and look, she has it, therefore it's quite appropriate. And I want to just say, it's so, it's so lovely to hear you say that because that's actually what I ended up doing. I came outside the room. I found the maternal fetal medicine specialist and the fellow. And I just said, oh my gosh, I, I almost, it was so hard for me to keep my composure in there. I was so angry because they didn't wear a mask. And then we had a, a like a cathartic discussion just for a few minutes, just, yeah, that is so frustrating. And then they you know, that was, so that was, that's great to hear that that's actually a, a, a good way to sort of move through that. Yes. That would be an example of processing and resolving. And it also removes the topic from the patient herself, himself, because it was, it's not really, you, you don't really want to go there. It, then it becomes, as I said, oppositional. We don't want that. But I do want to mention one other way of working with triggers based on your story. And I describe this in three chapters in my book. We're trying to see what's actually going on with us. So this is where the trigger experience is 
being used to help us know ourselves better and to see what's unresolved in us. Now we have completely taken it out of the dualism between ourselves and the one who triggered us, and we're using the trigger as the trailhead into the darker forest of our own psyche. I use a little acronym to help me do this, and I check myself out. I look into my triggered reaction, and I ask myself these three questions, which spell C-S-E-E. Is this my shadow? S, my ego, E, or my early life, E. Shadow is a term from Carl Jung to talk about the part of ourselves that feels socially unacceptable, so we repress it. But since the psyche always wants to resolve what's repressed, we see it more trenchantly and floridly in other people. And since it's actually in ourselves, it's called projection. So I am looking at somebody not wearing a mask, and I myself am the type who bucks authority and who does things that fulfill my own narcissistic wishes rather than the things that are best for the collective. So that's question one. Is my reaction actually a way of seeing what I myself have done or might do? And I can't allow myself to believe that I would be like that. So instead, I overreact to someone else being like that. So that's, that's the first question. The second question is ego. This time, I don't mean the healthy ego described by Freud, which is the stabilizing part of our psyche. I'm referring to what people call big ego, inflated ego. I'm the big shot. How dare anybody uh, not follow my rules? We have a few people like that occasionally in medicine. In <laughs> yes, this wouldn't be just about the patients. So I'm reacting because my ego has been activated. That's the second question. Is that why I'm reacting? Third question is, is this reminiscent of what happened to me in childhood or in some recent relationship? But it's always something from the past. So what I do is when I uh, notice myself having an overreaction, for instance, you use the word rage instead of say, mild anger. Annoyance would have been an alternative. Yeah. yeah. Nope. So I just tick down the list and I say, am I like this? That's shadow. Am I seeing myself? Has this person activated that big fat ego inside me that just has to be right and has to be obeyed and has to be the center of attention and has to be honored? Or is this something reminding me of what happened to me in the past? And it's an enormously healthy tool for you to look into yourself. And then each of those three, sometimes all three are activated, but each of them gives us clues about the terrain of our inner life, a terrain that may never have been fully explored or even discovered. So this is how a trigger, this is an example of how a trigger can help us go for 
a much bigger benefit than just, oh, I acted in a very professional way in, in how I handled my trigger. Does this make sense? Yeah. So I want to just jump in. I want to summarize a little bit of what I'm hearing and then maybe come back to you a little bit, Rebecca. So what I think is really interesting here, David, is we're taking this apparently almost trivial event, uh, what Malcolm Gladwell might call a thin slice of our life. Rebecca goes into the room, sees the patients without a mask, is flabbergasted and full of rage, steps out to process her feelings. And you're suggesting that very similar to a lot of the work that Rebecca and I and other simulationists do, we can have a short moment in a simulation, uh, maybe a short disagreement, or I gave medication A and I should have given medication B, a thin slice like that. We can then sort of self-reflect and debrief ourselves to essentially take a little hike into the terrain of what led to Rebecca feeling so angry in that moment. And I love the analogy of a trigger as a trailhead. It's like, ooh, here's an interesting pathway into the, you know, the forest. Rebecca, you know, totally up to you here. Uh, optional, how deeply you want to go into the forest. I'd love to hear what resonates uh, for you in terms of either, you know, shadow part of yourself or ego or early childhood. Or, and can I just say, I'd like to first normalize the likes of you, critical care physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, and others working in the ICU, working on the labor floor, working in the OR, it is temporarily quite risky. And to me, you'd be well within your rights to feel annoyed, even angry, even rageful that somebody wasn't protecting your health when you're working so hard to protect theirs. So I just want to say, you know, independent of all this psychological journey, I think you're entitled. But you being you, I suspect this might be interesting <laughs> to you. What are you thinking about as you listen to David uh, Rico talk about this? Well, I love the C. And as you, David, spoke of each of the questions, I was also exploring in my head, what could it be? So shadow doesn't resonate with me for this particular trigger because I am such a rule follower. I have to have permission for everything. It's <laughs> very much not a shadow but I can, I can definitely see the usefulness of thinking about that, the other parts of me that I may not share openly and may not even want to sort of acknowledge uh, as being potential sources of internal trigger, this, this process. The second one, ego, I think has probably more weight than the other, which is I'm here, I'm important to your care, and you're not honoring me. And you're not doing things, you're not doing everything that you can do to help me who's trying so hard to help you. And so it was a little bit, I think, of a self-inflated, inflated self-importance, hopefully reasonable, but that is, is legitimate. The last one, early childhood, I was even wondering about just the experiences that we've all shared with this invisible threat that's everywhere and seeing people, you know, just succumb all across the age lines. I, I, I sort of also wondered if that is so raw for me that that was also, it's just been traumatic to process that. So I, I don't know how, how, I'm, how well I'm applying my own analysis to these questions, but that's sort of what, what came to mind. 
as you were speaking. Yeah, gee, you're looking at it perfectly as far as I'm concerned. So we're seeing how what could be something that we would just shrug off turns out to be something that might help us know ourselves better. I want to know myself well enough so that I'm more stable, useful, and loving in the world than all of this really uh, is grist for the mill for that to happen. In addition to that personal growth value, uh, David Rico, what I think is really important about your work is its very, very practical implications. As I look across the acute care clinicians that I work with, they are constantly having to move fast under time pressure, often under stress, often with systems and processes that if they don't go well, can really get in the way of providing what they consider the best care for their patients. And with the electronic medical record, with the increasing requirements of health insurance, I see my colleagues sort of barraged by daily frustrations that get between them and their patients. And without a way to, as you say, sort of stabilize yourself and stay present, both for yourself and for your patients, well-being can suffer, the well-being of the clinicians themselves, and also care for the patients. So... While I think that's easy to potentially see this work as a luxury for those who have the time, I'd like to argue that it's a necessity for all of us who don't have a lot of time and need to work under various pressured situations. So David and Rebecca, I want to shift gears if you're open to it and talk about David Rico's concept of resources. So David, in your book, Triggers, How We Can Stop Reacting and Start Healing, you talk about the fear trigger, the anger trigger, and the sadness trigger, and how those are, as you've said, trailheads for us to understand what's going on for us. But part of your powerful argument, in my view, is giving us things, if I can extend the metaphor, to put in our backpack or to take with us into the forest to help us be present with the either challenging or difficult or scary things that are coming up as we do head into the forest of our own reactions and psychology and so on. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your thinking on these resources, and then I thought we could shift gears and talk with Rebecca about an experience she'd had where it seemed to me she was very resourceful and sort of contrast that to a triggered situation. So love to hear what are your thoughts on what are the resources? How do we strengthen those resources to be able to go on the psychic journey into the forest that we can see when we are triggered? To notice a specific event or even personality trait in someone else that gets us every time. I'm triggered every time this happens. To be able to name that is the first part of being liberated from being compelled to react because triggers thrive on compulsion. We just can't help it. We just automatically become angry, afraid, sad, or even ashamed. Once we're able to name Rumpelstiltskin, he no longer has so much power over our P 
peace of mind or even our sense of ourselves as as powerful. So in other words, we're no longer victimized by the trigger. David, if I could, I want to jump in here and just share a lot of what I've seen Rebecca work with our OR teams, operating room teams, colleagues, uh, surgeons, circulating nurses, others, and our anesthesia colleagues is a process of what we sometimes call name it to tame it. But when you face a crisis, uh, Rebecca, I've seen you advocate, and I believe you've talked about the power of naming what's happening as the first organizing step in that process. Want to react to that at all? Oh, absolutely. I feel like when there's a label on it, when there's a name to it, it focuses people, it it resets the room when it's especially a, a very dangerous situation or challenging and multiple things have to happen in a very short window of time, each with heavy precision, just coordinated. I feel like when people have a lot of confusion clouding their consciousness, then when when just even you put as, as little of a name as just naming some vital sign derangements that are present, it helps people to cut through that fog and start to act in a more coordinated way. When you step in with the calm naming, it also sets the tone for how things are taken care of here. This is what we do. We don't blame, we don't go out of control, we don't panic. We name and we serenely move into, you know, what comes next. A wonderful resource is mindfulness, which is the ability to see what happens without the layerings of judgment, need to change it, need to control it, looking for a specific outcome, fear of what might happen, desire that it be all done in accord with my expectations. In the example that Rebecca gave, at some level, the mindful response to the person not wearing the mask is, this person is not wearing a mask. I will recommend that he now wear one. That's the mindful response. It has absolutely no judgment. And it's not as if it was wrong to have the original angry feeling. It's just that we allow ourselves to take leave of that and to go to this mindful place, which is exactly how you did handle it. You simply said, we wear masks here, so please wear one. I mean, ultimately, that's what you meant. Another resource is to access this Buddhist practice of loving kindness, which is to see all with compassion, with understanding, and I've expanded this idea of loving kindness also to include what I call the five A's. These are the original needs, the needs we came into the world with. We were born, certainly, with a need for 24-7 attentiveness to us from the caretakers. They needed to read our nonverbal cues about feeding, changing, holding, and then all through life, 
we continue to look for attention from others, others being able to hear and see us. And it's perfectly legitimate to want this for a lifetime. We certainly, in infancy, needed physical holding, physical touch, affectionate connection. In fact, our brain only can develop with such touching and holding. Then when we started to show that we had a particular personality style, we needed the third A, which is acceptance of us just as we are. We needed to know that we were with caretakers, parents, who were curious about who we were rather than imposing their demands about what we should be like to meet their inner representation of us. Then third, we needed to know that they cherished us, that's appreciation, that we were as good as our uh, siblings rather than secondary to one of them. Finally, when the time came to need them less, we were allowed to, be, to start to grow as independent beings. So the first time that happened was when we crawled across the floor rather than needing to be carried across. And our parents were okay with that. And then they were okay with our going to school on our own. And then they were okay to having the friends we would have as peers and so forth. Now these same five A's, attention, acceptance, appreciation, affection, allowing, also happen to be the very same needs and fulfillments that we look for in adult relationships. And it even turns out that they are the components of true love. How do I know someone loves me? Pays attention, shows physical affection appropriate to the nature of the relationship, accepts me as I am, and so forth. One of the ways that we would find a resource in dealing with triggers that come up from the people around us is to be able to hold the experience with those five A's. This is what Winnicott, famous British child psychiatrist, calls the holding environment in which true development can proceed. A place where you know that whatever you bring up will be held attentively, acceptingly, appreciatively, affectionately, and with full allowing, rather than blaming, controlling, rejecting, and so forth. So David, as any of us come into a situation, somebody does something, you semi-jokingly said it happens every time, uh, you know, there's certain triggers that just trigger us every time, or that person does that every time, or the example that Rebecca generously shared of walking to, into a patient's room and feeling triggered into rage by the fact that they weren't wearing their mask. That part of what we individually bring to bear for ourselves as resources is the word that you've used in your book to help us manage those triggers are naming what's happening, being present with it, mindful of it, and then this basically benevolent army of the five A's of attention, acceptance, appreciation, affection, and allowing. 
essentially, I think you're saying create a container for ourselves to manage that trigger temporarily. Winnicott talks about a holding environment. Rebecca and I, as we work in creating simulation environments, think about creating a safe container. We draw on the work of Winnicott, although many people in the simulation world may not know they're drawing on the work of Winnicott. So you're saying we get triggered and then we need to basically create a little container for ourselves to manage that. How am I doing? Uh, love to hear your reflections on that. Yeah, I mean, you've expressed it perfectly. Container is such an interesting word from the Jungian point of view because it's the archetype of safe development. We began our life in the container of the womb, and then at the end we go to the container of the tomb. <laughs> and all the in-between is one container after another, be it school, church, circle of peers, relationships. They're all containers and so we need to know what is the etiquette in a container that allows for full maturation. Hmm. And I'm thinking that those five A's help us with that. So I'd like to grab that and turn the conversation back to another the composite event, Rebecca, that you've chatted with me about. And I'm thinking that we might use this as a example to explore the resources that we can bring to an event that could be very triggering. But in the case of the one I think you're going to relate, somehow you were able to really hold on to yourself and stay very calm and self-soothe. And I wonder if you could tell us about it. And then maybe David Rico, if you were open to it, I'd love to hear your reflections on Rebecca's experience. So sure. So um, so this is, you know, being an obstetric anesthesiologist on labor and delivery, the expectation is that things are going to go really well for moms, that everyone's going to be safe and there are going to be no bad outcomes. And of course, we know that even sometimes despite our best efforts, people are really, really sick. And uh, over the past few months, we have had some brief forays into that, an event that happened that I recollected and shared with Jenny was a brief maternal cardiac arrest after after we placed an anesthetic. So I was not actually in the room when this happened. I saw people running down the hall and a big mass of people enters the operating room. I come with them and I see uh, the patient is having chest compressions done. Someone is trying to help bag mass ventilate her. And I immediately went into a, just a very uh, reflexive move, which is to basically take her belly containing her large uterus and pull it over to the side so it could come off of the big blood vessels in the body and allow blood to pump back to her heart and allow her heart to be restarted as part, one part of many of the moves that were happening. And after we had revived her, temporarily, I immediately went and was able to just very be very clear about what were the next moves. And I felt like this almost, it sounds very strange, but it was like, it felt very harmonious. Even though we were in this very dangerous situation for the patient, she revived, we did all the right things, we planned in 20 seconds. So to the outside eye, 
it may have looked like chaos with the surgical tech madly opening equipment to do a, an emergency delivery, emergency cesarean delivery on her. The OBs were gathering around and trying to find what the baby's heart rate was to reestablish, do we have one? Do we need to go? Is it too late? What's happening? Uh, the anesthesia folks, I, I was one of the people trying to get IV access and drop medications to keep her safe and to treat blood pressure and all these other things. The room was filled with people. And then the code team came in and started responding. So just a massive group of people. And all I felt was this sort of this just very focused. We are doing everything we need to do. I felt lots of pride actually in the fact that we were working so beautifully together. And afterwards, it was such an interesting conversation when we debriefed because the residents who were there said, I hated it. It was chaotic. I felt just, you know, it wasn't, it was so loud in there. It was so much chaos. And I had to stop the conversation just to say, I have to add my two cents. Chaos is disarray and disorganization and nobody's working together. And in fact, they're probably working opposite to what they need to be doing. And what you saw was a beautiful choreography of a crazy event that never feels good afterwards, except that we were happy that things turned out well for the patient, of course, but that the noise level and everything was necessary uh, to get everybody to do the right things. And so it was just a really interesting experience afterwards that I, and I, I felt so much, to use your words, so much affection for my colleagues who went through that and were in there. And I felt so honored to be a part of them that it carried me through the rest of the day. It's, it's was very interesting to me. So I wonder if you have thoughts about any of that. Well, it's a beautiful story, first of all. And it must have been wonderful to be present the way you were. What I was thinking as you were describing it is that you took the chaos and the noise as all part of activating your equanimity. And in this uninterrupted equanimity, you simply did the right thing each step of the way. And obviously, to the benefit of the patient, it would be really useful for the other people when you did the debriefing to get it. You don't have to take the noise and the chaos the way you do in the outside world. Here, the noise and the chaos activates us so that we do what we need to do. So it's like reconfiguring the meaning of the environment so that it all becomes useful somehow. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so, so what I thought was so interesting in these two contrasting stories, Rebecca Meinhardt and David Rico, is in the first story, it appears to be almost a trivial event. Rebecca walks into a room, patients aren't wearing a mask, she's enraged. In the second context, we have a mom who's giving birth and goes into cardiac arrest, something that would reasonably trigger anybody into fear or distress, but instead tips Rebecca into this kind of calm presence of she's able to name what's going on. It sounds like she's mindful. I'm, I'm naming the resources that you talk about, uh, David Rico. And 
to some degree bring this loving kindness in the in the form of affection and appreciation for her colleagues and and allowing them to do the work that they need to do and bringing her excellent attention so it's almost like the trigger happened and then the resources were triggered i wonder if you have any thoughts about what might set us on a pathway to being just triggered triggered versus having a triggering experience that then triggers the resources? It would be um, how I see the trigger. Do I see it as uh, somehow an assisting force that is encouraging me to uh, actualize potentials in me about how to work in situations in such a way that the best result occurs? Be a whole new way of looking at things. Rebecca, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think there's something about that. I think there's, you know, I spent a lot of time teaching and uh, practicing crises, and I think I have come to accept that and and reframe as you sort of were talking about seeing the cha- the chaos not as a an inhibiting force, but more as a facilitator that there are lots of things happening that are going to help me and help the patient. So, uh, the, so it's not to be, it's not to be feared. It's not to be changed. I mean, of course we have to be able to hear each other. So sometimes it does, the noise level does have to come down, but, but it doesn't have to go away. It doesn't have to be abolished. I do think that that, that kind of, that concept of this environment is a facilitator of those resources is a useful one to think about. So, uh, David Rico, Rebecca Meinhart, I'm going to move toward wrapping up our conversation right now. We've talked a bit about triggers as a potential trailhead into understanding ourselves and a way to tap into resources that we have. Uh, We've also talked about bringing attention, acceptance, appreciation, affection, and allowing into our relationships, both with ourself and with each other. With that kind of recap, I'd love to give you each uh, some time, if you wish, to just sort of share some final thoughts. And uh, maybe Rebecca, I'll come to you, and then David Rico, I'll give you the last word. Rebecca, where are you ending up at the end of this conversation? I have loved this conversation. I feel like this is an immensely helpful tool set to add to my toolkit. And it is actually something I'm going to go back to work when I go back to work tomorrow night um, on call. uh, I'm going to share with my team because I feel like this is something that we are experiencing, but not necessarily discussing as openly as we need to probably for many of the reasons that you talk about, David. And I just really appreciate the expertise you've brought to this conversation, the enlightenment that I've had just even in this short time that we've spoken. So thank you so much. And David Rico, what are your thoughts as you bring your long experience and writing and ideas up against this critical care context and uh, the reality of kind of healthcare in uh, the age of the COVID-19 pandemic? What, what's going through your mind? I'm feeling a great appreciation and respect for all that you guys are doing. And uh, I kept thinking as you were talking, Rebecca, about how fortunate we are that 
our whole experience of a of a medical situation has moved into such a humane, humanistic style, and that people are actually thinking of themselves as teammates and companions. Yeah. So thank yeah. you. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you both. This has been a conversation in COVID Chronicles with David Rico. Jungian Buddhist psychotherapist and prolific writer, and helped along with co-host Rebecca Meinhardt, an anesthesiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital and my partner in crime at the Center for Medical Simulation in creating learning environments um, using simulation for crisis resource management in the perioperative environment. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope this was a bit of an oasis in your day. Remember, you're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph. Learn more at www.harvardmedsim.org.